Morning. Good to see this number out with us this morning. We've got a good number with us, and good to see our young people as excited as they are for camp tonight. That's always a good thing, and uh, we'll miss them, uh, but we know they'll have a great time, and we pray for safety for all of our young people that are planning on heading to camp tonight. Proverbs 16, verse number 18. Proverbs 16, verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. This is a a timely message right now, something that is needed. I think we're all familiar with this proverb. I hope that we are. We've probably also all got some moments in our lives in which we very quickly realized, oh, yes, that's true. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. You've got a bulletin article regarding this that you can look at this morning if you haven't already. Uh, Maybe riding a bike for the first time without training wheels. I don't know. Oh, I've got this. And then off the bike you come, right? We've all got those kinds of moments in our lives where we got prideful. Proverbs 6 Verse 17, the very first thing on the list of seven things that God hates and are abomination to him, the very first one, a proud look. Proverbs 8, verse 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance, and the evil way and the perverse mouth, I hate. Again, this is a timely message this morning. Proverbs 11, verse 2, when pride comes, then comes shame, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 29, verse 23, a man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. Proverbs 16, verse 5, everyone proud in his heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces, none will go unpunished. Again, this is a timely message this morning. Let's go to the New Testament, the book of James, which sometimes is called the Proverbs of the New Testament. James 4, verse 6, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I need not remind you that this month in particular, there's a lot of pride going around. But not just this month. It's been going on for all time, really. From the moment of the very first sin, there was pride involved. I want you to go back to Genesis for a moment. In Genesis 3, verses 4 through 5, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What was the tool in Satan's toolbox that he was using there? Was it not pride? Hey, if you do this, you'll be like God, Satan says. As uh, we said, I I think on Wednesday night in our Bible class leading up to this, and also in the bulletin article, I, I believe I note this. What is the middle letter in the word pride? And it's also the, the middle letter in the word sin as well, by the way. I. And when it boils down to it, that's what it's all about. Pride is all about I, 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 or 
me, me, me. We want to talk about the problem with pride for a moment. And again, the bottom line is that pride takes the emphasis off of God and it places it wholly upon self. Pride was the problem with the foolish man who built bigger barns in Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 12. I want to go back and read that again. Luke 12, verses 13 through 21. I think we mentioned this Wednesday night as well when we're talking about 2 Corinthians chapter 10. But Luke 12, verses 13 and following. Luke 12, verses 13 to 21. The parable of the rich fool. Jesus says this, Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And that's kind of ironic to me, because Jesus is our judge. But he's not judging something as trivial as this. Hey, tell him to split the inheritance with me. That's not what Jesus Jesus is about. He's going to judge much more important things, isn't he? Verse 15, and he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall, and I want you to notice the personal possessive pronouns here, What shall I do? Since I have no room to store my crops. So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, This night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will these things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Do you see that this whole parable is absolutely rife with this man's pride? This rich young fool, as he is called, selfishness and pride... But I guess the big problem with pride specifically is that a prideful person refuses to see the need to seek after God. A prideful individual thinks, well, I've got everything I need myself right here. And so who needs God? And so when James writes in James chapter 4, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, is it? any wonder. Of course, God is going to resist the proud because the proud act like they don't need God. And God is going to offer grace to the humble because humility really is the first step in accepting Jesus's plan of salvation in our lives. We have to be humble. We have to realize, hey, there's a problem. And the problem starts with me. The problem starts with my sin. And so I'm humble And I'm going to seek further the grace of God by accepting His plan of salvation, by accepting His Son. I want to talk about the spiritual battle that we are in for a moment. 
It's no surprise that we are in a battle for the soul of a nation, for the souls of our kids, and for our very own souls. And we see the bombs dropping every day, metaphorically speaking. We see the walls that people put up when we try to teach the gospel. And so certainly we are in a spiritual war. We see the devil's game plan unfolding right before our eyes through various agendas that he is using. But none of this should come to a surprise to us because it is exactly what is promised to us in God's Word. Last Wednesday night in our study of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, we've got several here that uh, were either in the back teaching and and didn't hear our discussion on that or or, uh, perhaps weren't able to be here. But I want us to go and look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10 again, verses 3 through 6. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 6. Of course, Paul is again dealing with the Judaizing false teachers here. And what does he say beginning in verse number 3? He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. And so when Paul writes this here in 2 Corinthians 10, we also Hopefully, our minds immediately also jump to Ephesians chapter 6, which is, again, dealing with the spiritual war that we are in. And we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the darkness of this world. Uh, Ephesians 6, verse 12. So we've got to put on the whole armor of God. But he says that we do not walk in the flesh. We do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and we need to be prepared to do that in love, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity of the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Every high thing that exalts itself against God, is that not pride? Let's make the connection to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And we want to notice very quickly verses 18 through 32. Romans 1 verses 18 through 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness... And unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are, and we all are, without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. What is that? That is pride. And changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. Again, we have a timely message this morning. Pride and absolute hedonism. What is hedonism? We don't use that word a whole lot anymore, but that means eat, drink, and be merry like the rich young fool. It means do whatever you please, do what makes you feel good. That is hedonism, and that's what's going on in verse 26 and 27. Serving the creature rather than the creator, verse 25. Verse 28 And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. What is a debased mind? It is a mind that is completely morally corrupt, completely morally bankrupt. And so what you have is you have sin in this manner that is deviated from the truth, and then you have sin that is in another matter that's just even further perverted. And then you have sin that further perverts itself, and it just it is a downward spiral. And, and we see this readily. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. And so are we picking on just one sin today? Well, I know we're talking about pride, but are we picking on just one? Or are all these things condemned by God? All of them. Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Finally this morning, I want us to understand the proper reaction to sin. And simply this, the proper reaction to sin is not to stick our chest out. It is not to thumb up our nose and say simply, so what? But the proper reaction to sin is to humbly admit, to humbly confess sin in our lives and beg for the mercy of God. I want us to notice three texts this morning in which individuals very clearly had the right mindset when it came to sin. But before we go there, I want you to think about Numbers 32 verse 23. Numbers 32, verse 23, Moses had been speaking to the tribes of Reuben and Gad. And what is happening is we're getting ready to go over into the land of Canaan. And these events take place in Joshua. Getting ready to go over into the land of Canaan and take the land that God gives to the Israelites as a possession Well, the tribes of Reuben and Gad, before they cross the Jordan River to go in, they say, hey, we like this land right here. This is perfect land for our flocks. We'll just take this land. Moses says, well, here's the deal. 
you better go over the river and fight with your brethren. If you don't do that, you're going to be in trouble. So make sure you go over and fight with your brethren. Then you can come back across the, the river and, and have this land to the east of the Jordan. But Numbers 32 in verse 23, Moses says this regarding that. He says, but if you do not do so, that is, if you don't come over and fight with your brethren, then take note, you have sinned against the Lord. And the very famous statement that is next is, be sure your sin will find you out. Now, we're probably very familiar with that statement. Again, the context is dealing with conquering the land of Canaan. But how often is it the case that sin finds itself out in our lives? When it does, when sin finds us out in our lives, the question is, how do we react to it? What do we do? Let's notice the proper reactions to sin. And the first one we want to look at is David, after confronted by Nathan the prophet. Of course, David had sinned with Bathsheba. And not only that, but he tried to cover it up, didn't he? And ultimately, what did he do? He had a man killed. He murdered Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. He murdered Uriah so that he could try to get away with his sin. But you know what? His sin found him out. Nathan, the prophet, he courageously confronts David, and he tells him a parable. He tells him a parable about a rich man who had plenty of lambs, but also there was a poor man. And this poor man had just one little ewe lamb, just one. He loved that lamb so much. It was like a family member to him, it even says. But the rich man decides to take the poor man's one little lamb and kill it for his own selfish purposes. Upon hearing this, this parable told by Nathan, David is outraged, and rightly so. This was a tremendous injustice that was committed against the poor man. You, he has one and you took it from him? But little does David know that it's all about Let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, and I just want us to notice verses 11 through 15. 2 Samuel 12, verses 11 through 15. You know what he said in verse 7? He said, Nathan, that is, Nathan says, you're the man. King James, I love it how he says it, thou art the man. Now, there are a couple ways that David could react to this. Now, we know David was a man after God's own heart, so we know he ends up reacting the right way. But could he not, being a king, could he not have said, how dare you, Nathan, talk to me like that, off with his head? That was within his power. He could have done that to David. And in Israel's history, we see people like uh, Jezebel and Ahab, what are they doing to the prophets of the Lord? They're having them killed. Well, if David wasn't a man after God's own heart, he could have done that to Nathan here. And so this was tremendous courage on Nathan's part. But I want you to notice beginning in verse 11, 2 Samuel chapter 12, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. 
and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do all this thing before all Israel, before the son. So David said to Nathan, this is how David responds to his sin. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. And then Nathan departed to his house. David doesn't mince words. He does not pridefully make excuses. He simply says, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan, you're exactly right. I have sinned against the Lord. When you get a chance, read Psalm number 51. Psalm number 51. As David pours out his heart in in sorrow, in grief over his sin with Bathsheba. Let's move on. Let's go to our New Testament. Turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. When you think of Acts chapter 9, hopefully your mind goes to Saul, or later known as Paul. Acts chapter 9. Paul was a self-described Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee. Do you think that Paul had to work on his ego? When I read the writings of Paul, I see humility all over them. But I bet he had to work at it. He was indoctrinated in Pharisaism. And what were the vast majority of Pharisees? Most of them were very prideful. I know we have a few examples like Nicodemus and others who seem to uh, come through and, and have the right heart, but you also have lots of passages that deal with the, the Pharisees and Jesus calling them hypocrites and etc. I'm sure that this is something that Paul had to work on. He had to be humble. But I want you to notice in Acts chapter 9, the road to Damascus eventually leads... Paul where he needs to go so that he can become a Christian. Acts 9, verses 1 through 6. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, the Christian way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. You're hurting yourself, Paul. Why are you doing this? Verse number six, so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what would you have me to do? That's a humble response. 
That's a man who has trained himself to be humble. Lord, I have been completely against you. I have been persecuting the people that are of your way. I've been persecuting Christians, putting them to death. But now I see you. What would you have me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. He goes and talks to Ananias. Ananias tells him, Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord, Acts 22 and verse 16. Finally, my favorite for last this morning. Let's go back to our Old Testaments, to the book of Ezra. Let's go to the book of Ezra, chapter 9. Ezra, chapter 9. I want to end on this one because Ezra is an absolutely outstanding leader. Ezra is a humble man. Ezra, this is, this is the perfect example of how we should be when our sin finds us out. Ezra is a good leader. This is after the Babylonian captivity. and uh, the, the Jews are coming back to their homeland, and they need to rebuild the temple, and it's taking some time and, quite frankly, too much time. And, of course, Nehemiah, that book, they're going to be building the walls as well, but two very similar books. Ezra is a leader in this situation. He comes back, and he is ready to get the job done. But we come to Ezra chapter 9. By the way, Ezra 7 verse 10, Ezra pre prepared his heart for this. Don't miss that, Ezra 7 verse 10. Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances to Israel. Ezra, not a prideful man at all, but a humble and submissive man. But we come to chapter 9, and Ezra finds that the men of Judah are once again wrapped up in the sins of the Canaanites, intermarrying with them, idolatry with them, fornication with them, all kinds of stuff going on with these Canaanites. Incidentally, what put them in Babylon in the first place? In captivity, all those things. Here they are, once again, after captivity, going back into sin with the Canaanites. And so we need to read Ezra chapter 9. When these things were done, the leaders came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. With respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. Verse number three, I've got it starred. So when I heard this thing, that is when Ezra heard this, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard, just intense frustration and grief and sorrow 
and remorse on the part of Ezra there. And he sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgressions of those who had been carried away captive. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. This is probably hours taking place here, and he's just sitting there astonished, completely in shock. Are you kidding me? Here we are coming back from captivity, and surely 70 years of captivity, they've had a lot of time to think about the sins that put them there in the first place, and what are they doing? They're going right back to it. And so he sits here astonished. Verse 5, at the evening sacrifice... I rose from my fasting. That gives you an idea of what is an important purpose for fasting. And having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, this is one of my favorite prayers in all of the Bible. This is the attitude that we should have when we find ourselves in sin, when our sin finds us out. Not prideful. Listen to the humility of this prayer. Oh, my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated. The root word of humiliated is humility. I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. And our guilt has grown up to the heavens. This is a timely message this morning. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings, and our priests have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation, as it is this day. And now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place. I love that, just a little peg. We don't deserve anything, but you give us just a peg in your holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now... O oh, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. After all that you've done for us, what can we say for ourselves? We've forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations, which have filled it from one end to another with their impurity. Now, therefore... Do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons. 
and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us, you might want to start this. Since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve. That is a humble man. That is a man that understands what the meaning of mercy is. That is a man who understands the meaning of grace. That is a man who understands, hey, I deserve terrible infliction and punishment from God, but you've punished me less than my sin deserves and have given us such deliverance as this. Should we again break your commandments? and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you have consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. For we are left as a remnant, as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. One of my favorite, favorite prayers in all of the Bible, Ezra says, we don't even deserve to stand before you, God. Please, we humbly beg you, forgive us of this travesty that is once again in the land. That's a humble prayer. That is a penitent prayer. That is the absolute opposite of pridefulness when confronted with sin. And Ezra took it upon himself as a leader should. He says, hey, you know what? I'm just as guilty because I'm supposed to be leading these people. And I've fallen down on the job. These are examples of how we must respond to our sins when they find us out. Not the vague, I'm sorry if I did this, not the excuse-making, I'm sorry, but... Not the, well, if you understand what happened to me in my childhood, then you would understand that that's what caused me to act out in these sins. Not, well, I was born this way. Not, well, let me throw myself a parade. Those are not how we respond to sin. The way that we biblically respond to sin, any sin, any sin, the way that we biblically respond is we admit it. We own up to it, just like David did. I have sinned against the Lord. We humbly bow before the God of heaven like Ezra did. You've punished me less than I deserve. Here I am before you. Lord, I'm yours to deal with. And I know I deserve punishment, but I'm begging for your mercy. 
And like Paul did, Lord, what would you have me to do? That's the biblical response to any sin that finds us out. What would you have me to do? It may be the case this morning that you, like Saul, Acts chapter 9, you found out you've been going one direction and it's the wrong way to go. And now you want to turn around and go the right way. Repent like he did. Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins like Paul did. Call on the name of the Lord. Believe on him with all your heart. Confess Christ before this number this morning and put him on in baptism for the remission of your sins this morning if you've never done that. If you need to come for any other reason, we ask that you please come as we stand and sing.